I shared this with Brian when I first came to Fisherville, and I've shared it with other pastor friends of mine. Since I stepped out of full-time pastoral ministry for the time being in 2013, uh, a fear of mine has been what I've sort of coined theological atrophy. You know what atrophy is, is when the, you stop using your muscles and they get flabby and weak. And So my fear has been, since, since the water I swam in for well over a decade was daily, deep, lengthy Bible study and, and sort of just swimming in that sort of context day after day. And I, and, and I, I never took it for granted, but I find myself now uh, relying on things that I preached um, to others about, you know, pursuing holiness and pursuing the face of God and, and, and staying faithful to do those things that are so important. I find myself in that struggle. Um, and for so long, I preached to others about that, and now I understand which is a very good thing. But it hit me even this week, try not to, okay, it hit me even this week that a more, I think, potent danger than theological atrophy, which scares me even worse, and, and what I think the Lord has revealed to me is doxological atrophy. And those two are tied together because theology should lead to doxology. Everything you know about, about God and his character and, and his greatness should lead you to worship. And my fear is that subtly, I have sort of started to slide into a doxological atrophy. And the cure for a doxological atrophy is to sit at the foot of the cross and linger there long. Consider what was done on my behalf and on our behalf as God's people in that moment. So that's what I want to do tonight is to look carefully at that event. For in this event we see the highest demonstration of God's mercy and grace mingled with the fiercest display of judgment and wrath this world has ever seen. And it's glorious. Because in both of those things is God glorified. And so we need to look at that very deeply. I find myself now in this, in this season of life, and I'm going to try to stop doing that. I don't know if that's a... That should do it. Okay. I'll just talk louder. So. But I find myself more and more in this season of life needing God to answer the prayer of the hymn writer to employ his goodness like a fetter to bind my wandering heart to him precisely because I am prone to leave the God I love. With so many things keeping me busy now that are not of the ministry nature necessarily, um, it's tough sometimes. I mean, and you guys know this. So I need that. I need to avoid those atrophies and pursue God. I was reading the prophet Jonah this week, uh, and again, it was one of those moments where I, I'm reading, and, and I was just struck by this guy, and I was incredulous at the moment he actually defends himself and his anger by citing who God is, by citing his attributes. If you remember, you know, Jonah ran, of course, God got his attention. God, you know, you, you know the story. But so Jonah ends up going through Nineveh and preaching. And what do the people do from the king on down? Ashes and sackcloth, they repent. But what does Jonah do? And this blew me away. Jonah 4.1. I mean, if this, is not, if this is not an example of doxological atrophy, I don't know what is. It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I, was in yet, when I was yet in my country, that this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish? For I knew that you are a gracious God. What? <laughs> For I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I mean, he is, he is pulling from Exodus 34. I mean, in the cross, we see a greater display of God's glory than Moses saw when God hit him in the cleft of the rock and passed by him and turned on the afterburners. When we see the cross and meditate upon that, we are seeing the glory of God. And here you have someone like Jonah who's defending himself by citing God's glorious attributes. What in the world? But then I realized God's holding a mirror up to me. See, Jonah was confused about who served who. And I, th- I think that's where, that's how I get sometimes. Jonah was to be serving God, but Jonah got upset when God was not serving his purposes. Don't save these Ninevites, judge them. And I do that so easily. And so again, I see that as a symptom of atrophy. So I think the cure is what we're going to look at tonight. Um, and, ho- and hopefully this, this will hold a mirror up to us as well. Uh, and, and as we read this, and, and normally getting to this passage would have taken months you know, at, at best. You know, you, and Pastor, how long were you in Exodus? A long time. I was a young boy, yeah. I was in high school. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but, it, and let me say this, you know, I, I appreciate, because it takes a long time. I've, I've pastored a couple of churches, and it takes a long time to build a preaching ministry. There is, when, when, a, when a pastor is sort of in the pocket, we'll say, there's, there's a, a breathing, an intake and breath that comes from the, from the congregation and the pastor. It's, you know, solid expository preaching is what the congregation expects and demands, and it's what the pastor desires to give. It's how he worships. And so I, I appreciate, brother, that you have done that, and, and I sense that in you because I've, I've felt that before. And so I sense that, that, that long road of building a ministry of expository preaching. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm blessed with you guys to experience that week in and week out. Um, but what that does is safeguard us. And so normally we would have taken some time to get here, but we're familiar with what happens here in Mark 15. The gospel writers record this for us. So I'm going to read verses um, 22 through 32. And, and notice, I mean, this scene is, is full of, of irony. And we're going to look at that tonight. There's some irony here about, you know, what's, what we see versus what is really, really happening. And the interesting thing about, about any gospel writer's uh, accounting of the, of the crucifixion and even the trials that lead up to it, if you, if you lay that alongside Philippians 2, 1 through 10, you can see a display of the irony. Because in the gospel writers show for us what is physically happening and taking place. And Paul is sort of peeled back in Philippians 2, 1 through 10, what was really taking place in that time because whereas the soldiers mocked Jesus with a purple robe they mocked his position God was highly exalting him we know from Philippians 2 they crowned him with thorns but God was crowning him with a name above all names they feigned homage to him by bowing but we are assured that one day every knee will bow and they anointed him with spit and blows to the head but he will be anointed by every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. And they will enthrone the king on a cross, which we'll see tonight, but he will sit on the throne of heaven. And by the way, that's sort of the title we're working under tonight is Behold Your King, because that's what I want us to do tonight. You know, Pilate will say, in, in, in all this chaos, he will say, Eche homo, behold the man. 
But I would say to you tonight, behold your king. Look past the chaos and through the irony and see what is really happening in this moment. So verses 22 through 32, this is what we read. Mark 15. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered, their, offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled that says he was numbered with the transgressors. Now I realize some of your translations do not have verse 28, and we'll, we'll talk about that. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, who is king of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And this scene has become, unfortunately, commonplace even among believers. But we have to look at it with eyes that are fresh and really press in to truly see what's taking place here. No other event in all of history gives us a clearer picture of the nature of God. His person is inextricably bound up in the cross event. We see God there. We see wrath and grace, punishment and pardon, condemnation and freedom. All there at the cross. Now, crucifixion was a very public event. I mean, this is a grand demonstration of human execution that served two purposes in the minds of the Roman government. Number one was to inflict as much pain and suffering as possible while slowly inducing death. And number two, it was to serve as a visual warning to those who witnessed it. It was a deterrent, a crime deterrent. And Mark gets right to the point, as we've seen. I mean, Mark's gospel is known for being very fast-paced, very, he, the details he includes are very rapid-fire. So we're sort of shocked at the brief mention and lack of description concerning what they did to Jesus. As we'll see, every gospel writer uses just a certain phrase to, to describe this. There they crucified him. So it's assumed that we know a lot about what that phrase means. So, and, and the reason for this, every one of Mark's original readers would have been very familiar with crucifixion and would not have wanted to linger long over that. Look at verse 22. He simply immediately gives us the location, simply known as at that time Golgotha, which is Aramaic, and he translates it for us and says place of the skull or hill of the skull. In Greek, it's cranion, where we get skull, cranium. And of course, the Latin is Calvaria, Calvary. Now, as interesting as that is for us, what is important is that this is a very visible, very infamous hillside outside the city gate, right beside a very heavily traveled road out by the city dump. That's where the king will be. But getting there was just as much as a part of the show as the crucifixion itself. I mean, this was a, what I would, what I would term a, a parade of death in front of as many people as possible. Again, so they could witness what was taking place here. And we know from secular history that a victim of crucifixion was placed in the middle of four soldiers, one at each corner, 
who marched alongside with him. He would have to carry the patabellum or the, 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 the crossbeam that's in excess of 100 pounds. And you think about what Jesus has already been through. Jesus' scourging was not 39 lashes minus one. That's a Jewish punishment. This was a Roman punishment. They slaughtered him. So he's carrying this in the middle of these soldiers. And, and, and in front of him would have been another officer who carried the placard that had the crime he was accused of, which, as we'll see, will be placed on the cross. And there's, again, there's some irony, irony in that that we will see. So the longest possible route is taken through the city so people can see what is happening. Then we get to verse 23. It says, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. I mean, it's a, a passing detail, and it's believed this is probably some type of anesthetic which would have dulled some of the pain, but Jesus refused it. He would feel every bit of this pain, and he's keeping a promise as well that he made to his disciples. He will not drink of the fruit of the vine until he drinks it anew in the kingdom. So he's keeping his word. The only cup that Jesus would drink is the cup of God's wrath. And Spurgeon said he would drink it down to the bitter dregs and turn the cup upside down on the table for us. This, these things are things we need to keep in mind as, as we read through this. Because we come to this little phrase in just a moment. They crucified him there in verse 24. That's the phrase that leaves us hanging and wondering what's going on in this moment. And again, every gospel writer uses that phrase to describe what is unfathomable. There they crucified him. So, and again, I don't want to belabor that point because we've likely looked at this issue a lot and considered it quite a bit. But this was a, a method of execution that was developed by the Phoenicians but perfected by the Romans. So again, this was meant to inflict as much suffering as possible. So, after the severe beating that Jesus had taken, there is the parade of death through the streets of Jerusalem. The victim of crucifixion was stripped naked, thrown down onto a crossbeam where his arms were stretched out further than they should be stretched, and then two iron spikes were driven through the bones of his wrists, through the medial nerves of his wrists. So he would carry this, or once he was nailed to, to this crossbeam, he would be hoisted, dangling from that beam, into a a post that was set firmly in the ground and attached to the top of it. Of course, once that happens, they bend his legs, place one foot on top of another, on top of a small slanted platform, and another iron spike is driven through both feet into the cross. And then the dance of death begins. So this is that pulling up through those spikes to catch a breath and then relaxing to let the breath out. So most victims of crucifixion would die from asphyxiation because at some point this becomes too much to bear. And this sometimes could go on for days. Up, down, up, down, up, down. And I mean no disrespect by calling it the dance of death, but that is essentially what it is. And it was meant to be seen as humiliating. You know, the word excruciating, yep, and many of you probably know this, it means Latin for out of the cross. And I never realized that until just several years ago. I really, I really watch how, I don't really ever use that word anymore. I don't know that I've ever ha had anything be excruciating. But this was literally just that. So all that's taking place, that amount of suffering, that display, and look what's happening right beneath this. And again, I hope this isn't something that we 
that we just pass over. The soldiers are throwing dice at the foot of the cross to see who gets what of his clothes. What's nice enough to sell? Maybe I can get a little bit for this. Maybe this is something I could use. All the while, there's the king on the cross. And this is a fulfillment of Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So they're oblivious to what's really taking place, what's being done for the likes of them. Verse 25. Notice how Mark is just giving us these, these details, rapid fire, one after another. Verse 25, we get the time. We've got the place, the method, here's the time. Verse 25. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. It's about 9 a.m. So there hangs the king on the cross, reigning in a way they had never imagined, ruling with a power they could not perceive, and doing something that is the very reason that you and I are here together tonight. This death was to purchase a people for his own possession. So that's just the description. That's his crucifixion. Now watch this. Starting in verse 26, here's our participation. Hopefully what I mean by that will come clear here. So this brief description that Mark gives us is, is, is food for thought concerning the call for our own participation in the death of Christ. And here we see, begin to see irony, irony, irony. Verse 26. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And we know from John's Gospel that this inscription was placed on the cross for everyone to see as they walked by. And it was in three languages, Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So there would be no person who could not understand exactly what he was charged with, what his crime was. And it was this, king of the Jews. There's irony. That sign is right, and then some. This is the king. He is the king they have longed for. He is the greater David, and they don't see it. Everything they long for is now charged against him as a crime. It's posted as a crime. Just as Jonah accused God with his own glorious attributes, so here the glory and mercy of God is mocked as a crime as he hangs there. So we're not all unlike Jonah. Look at verse 27. With him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And here's more irony. So here you have the king of glory flanked by sinners such as he came to die for. Watch this. Here's the irony. James and John had asked if they could be at the right and left of Jesus when he came into his kingdom. If they had not fled when the shepherd was struck, they might have understood Jesus' strong warning to reconsider their, their request. And then here's the second shade of irony. In crucifying two criminals on his right and on his left, this was a mocking picture as Jesus as king of the worst of humanity. And he is the king for the worst of humanity, praise God. Because I'm in that. And so are you. We need a king. See, we see Christ coming into his glory here. Philippians 2.8 says, He's being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here's the perfect picture of exaltation through humiliation. And this turns conventional wisdom upside down. 
as we'll see in a moment. Everything we see taking place here turns everything on its head. But this is exactly what we need. This is the king we need. It's not the king they were expecting or the king that they desired, but is the perfect king for our most desperate need. So those who desire to be close to Christ must share in his death. So what do I mean by this participation in his death? It's interesting. When you read what Paul has to say about us in relation to Christ and the crucifixion, what he says. Romans 6, 6, what does he mean by this? Knowing this, that our old self was what? Crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with so that we should no longer be slaves to sin. In Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So it's absolutely essential that those who know Christ have participated in the death of Christ. How is that done? By union with Christ. You come to Christ in repentance and faith. You are united to Christ and united in his death that we might be united in his resurrection. Because as we'll see, this is not the end of the story. Next Sunday is coming. So, you know, it's not, not this issue of being physically crucified, but embracing and seeing in the death of Christ that he was taking the certificate of death that stood against us with its demands and decrees and nailing it to the cross. That those were ours, not his. So we must be united in his death if his death would be effectual for us. Now, verse 28, I'd mentioned, you, you may have a version that did not have that verse. It skips directly from 27 to 29. So verse 28 is a, is a textual variant that was added later, but I believe it should be there. It's, it's a reference to a prophecy in Isaiah 53, 12. So why is it important that this is in there? This, and the scripture was fulfilled that says he was numbered with the transgressors. What does that remind us of? That God is in absolute control of this scene. Jesus is not being crushed under the wheels of history. He is laying down his life willingly. And everything we see taking place is a part of what we talked about this morning. Pastor Brian talked about providence. This is God providing for himself the lamb. This is it. And I think that reference to Isaiah 53 helps us to, to remember that. Because this is, this is a chaotic, bloody, stinking scene. We're out by the garbage dump, remember. So, there's a lot of irony here that the innocent one is counted as a guilty one. He takes his number at the long line, at the head of a long line of transgressors. And he becomes their head. So you're either a participant in the death of Christ or a detractor, which is what we're getting ready to see. So the detraction is this. So we've seen his crucifixion, our participation. Now I want you to see there are three groups of people here that are detractors, mockers with what's taking place here. Verses 29 through 32. Mark records three distinct groups that verbally assault Jesus either to his face or in conversation with one another. And each one of these assault is, assaults is grounded in the exact same challenge, but from a different perspective for a different reason. So the common plea that we see as we read through these verses for these groups is they say to Jesus, come down. Come down off the cross. Why would they say that? Well, each of them has a reason. 
Nobody wants a crucified Messiah. This was out of the realm of possibility for these people. I mean, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block. To Gentiles, foolishness. Why is it a stumbling block to Jews? Because this is the Messiah, right? A crucified Messiah doesn't make sense to them. He's supposed to be the conquering hero, right? The one who comes and does everything that they've been waiting for. And to Gentiles, well, there's no wisdom in this. How is exaltation achieved through death? That doesn't make sense. So it's foolishness to them. But this is exactly what God was doing. So... I want you to know how each one of them couches this challenge, come down from a different standpoint. Look at verses 29 through 30. The first group is the people who are standing around. It says, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. See, they perceive that it would be easier for him to hop off of that cross than it would be to destroy the temple and rebuild it because their mind is stuck on the actual temple. Tearing it down and rebuilding it in three days. Now, we know that Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. But in their minds, Jesus, just do this one thing, one more thing, and we'll believe. Come down off the cross, and we'll believe. This is the common cry from them. Note their challenge. Save yourself and come down from the cross. Again, presumably because that would be easier than tearing down the temple and completely rebuilding it. But the irony here is is that the temple is being destroyed in this moment. Everything that it stands for, everything that took place there, everything that it foreshadowed is being fulfilled in this moment. This once-for-all sacrifice binds up the entire Levitical system and says it is done. Every bit of it. this but these people can't see past their concern which is what the temple not looking to what it was screaming at them to look for and then we have the second group verses 31 and then the first half of verse 32 here it's the priests now they're speaking among themselves it says so also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another saying he saved others now that right there is damning. They saw what he did. They knew who he was. He saved others. They had seen him teach, heal, bless, serve. They had seen him. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ. And they're not saying that as a, a, by, in trying to honor him. They're mocking him. Let the Christ the king of Israel. You see the irony here? They're speaking truth. Let him come down from the cross that we may see and believe. That's the same challenge. Come down. If you'll do this one more thing, come down. We'll believe. They've already condemned themselves in their conversation with one another. Jesus had told Peter the night before, Matthew 26, verse 53. Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? It was no big deal for Christ to come down off the cross. But he didn't. 
So we have to admit that the old observation is true. It's not the nails, but the love of God for his people and for his glory that constrained Christ to stay on the cross. He is at this moment not healing infirmities, which they had seen him do, but purchasing a people for his own possession, healing something much deeper, the breach between God and man. You realize, you know, we've been going through Hebrews in the college class, and, and, and one of the things we talked about was, you know, the priesthood assumes something. The fact that there is a priesthood assumes that there's a breach, something very terrible has happened, because priests were go-betweens between God and man, which assumes something's terribly wrong. So here's the, here are the people who are charged with being the go-between, mocking the one who heals the breach. Mark 10.45 says, for the, Jesus is saying, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The last group, here they are. 30, verse 32, the last part of it. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Now we know from the other Gospels that one of those robbers, by sovereign grace, has his eyes opened and he sees Jesus for who he is. And he repents. A miracle of grace. That hasn't happened yet here. All we know here from what Mark says is these two guys are reviling the fellow that's between them. So even these guys at this point Look at this situation between them is pitiful. Like, what in the world? And it really, I mean, we have to sort of deduce their personal concern, but we're told that they are casting, here it is, the same insult at him. So it's the same thing. Come down. The insult is like, if, if you're the Messiah, Messiah, the liberator of Israel, how could you fall to a Roman execution? That doesn't make sense. These men were incensed because they were being put to death by an occupying enemy government. And if Jesus is the Messiah, hail the conquering hero who's supposed to come in and take care of that, then put an end to it now. Stop this nonsense. Because obviously, at this point, their concern was that you get off the cross, get us off of here too. Self-serving. So when you stop... And think about this scene and everything that's taking place, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the, the, it, it's chaos. It's utter chaos. From the soldiers throwing dice to, to the Jews complaining about the sign that's on the cross, take that down to the three groups of people that are mocking him to preserve their own interest. It is absolute chaos. And all of these people are trying to justify themselves with what they are seeing. And while the only hope of justification is suspended between heaven and earth right in front of them. But they're tied up in themselves. And we can get overwhelmed by the chaos. But we need to push in close to Christ. We need to stay long, linger at this scene. Commune with him there. And allow him to lift you up. So reflect on the atoning death of Christ. Listen to this. I referenced this earlier, but listen to Colossians 2, 13 through 15. Because this truth changes everything. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. Now listen to this. Having forgiven us all our transgressions 
having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. There is your conquering hero. There is your king. Everything that stood against us to condemn us, rightfully so, that threatened us in every way, Jesus has taken out of the way and nailed it to the cross. If you're his child tonight, this is your absolute assurance. This silence is the accusing voice in your head that condemns you. He has taken everything out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So closing thoughts. What is the cross? I mean, the cross reveals a lot to us. But think about these things. Number one, the love of God. If the cross does not display the love of God, what else does it display? Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the context of that verse is Paul going, throwing out that hypothetical situation. For a good man, someone wouldn't die. But maybe for a really good person, perhaps someone would dare to die. Maybe, if they're a really good person. But, but here's what should blow you away. Boy, we were stinking in our sin and hostile toward God. Christ died for us. He loves us. Number two, it also reveals the wrath of God very clearly. The very next verse, Romans 5, 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God, implying that that wrath was poured out on the substitute. It's there. It shows us the justice of God. Romans 3, 26, for Jesus was put forth as a propitiation in his blood for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, explaining how it is that God could possibly declare someone who is actually guilty innocent by punishing their substitute. And shows us the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24, But we preach Christ crucified, we've talked about this, the Jew, to the Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the, and the wisdom of God of God because this event turns all conventional wisdom upside down and then number five it shows us the power of God Romans 1 16 Paul glories in this and he says I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek so the cross is the actual hinge pin of all of history it is the most important event. So my question to us is, do we see the heart of God or are we blinded by the reality of what's physically going on here? Do we see into the irony of what was actually taking place in the midst of all this chaos? Have our lives been marked by throwing dice at the foot of the cross because of our own interests? Have we derided him to protect? I mean, have we liked Jonah accused God with his own glorious attributes because he's not serving us in the way we see fit. The, con 
consistent cry that day from everyone around Jesus was, come down, come down, come down. Do this one more thing, come down. But Jesus refused to come down. He would demonstrate a more powerful and more effective miracle. He would get up. Three days later. What's the more powerful and beneficial to us miracle? That he hop off the cross or that he get out of the grave? That he get out of the grave. That's the stamp of approval that the sacrifice was accepted, perfect, sufficient for us. You know, I, anytime on a Sunday evening, um, I know we, we gather together, we're mostly home folks, but I never want to preach through anything and not say, if you don't know Christ, if you've looked at this and say, you know, I'm, I'm one who's lived like that. I've been a detractor. I've, I've consistently asked Jesus to do this one more thing. And if the Spirit of God has opened your eyes to see and understand that you're a sinner in need of salvation, then Pastor Brian or myself or any of the elders here would love to speak with you tonight. And for those of you who do know Christ, I pray that just by looking at this text, you'll carry this into the rest of this week. As we approach Good Friday and we have a Good Friday service that's coming up, that this scene will be fresh on your mind. That the chaos and the irony will be something that you wrestle with to actually see what was taking place at the hand of God for his people. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you in this time for your grace and mercy. And Father, it's easy in some sense to simply open the Bible and look at what has been written, what has been recorded for us and talk about it. But God, the reality is who is worthy to speak of such things? Father, I realize that every time I have preached that there is a tainting of selfish motive on my part. And I pray, God, that you would remove that and that your word indeed would, by your promise, go forth and accomplish that for which you have sent it, that it not return void. And that in the days to come, in this week, as we approach Resurrection Sunday, that we would be able to deeply meditate upon the glorious reality that is the cross that takes us to the glorious reality of the resurrection. So, Father, we simply ask that you would open our eyes to worship you. May we not experience doxological atrophy. May a consideration of who you are and what you've done in Christ for your own glory and our eternal benefit drive us to white-hot worship. Father, we ask these things in the name of the one who has given his life for his people and raised for their justification. The name above all names, our King, Jesus. Amen.